Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is uh, the leading integral theorist, Dustin DePerna. But as usual, before we get started, a few housekeeping items. Starting October 30th, right around the corner, and for two successive three-day weekends, I'm doing my deepest dive into the world of dream yoga probably my favorite program of the year. And after that, I'm taking a pretty big break until 2021 to catch up on a lot of writing. Now, as for my guest today, I had a total blast talking to one of the brightest minds in the integral world about a tremendous array of material. And as you'll see, Dustin is remarkably well-informed about the paths of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. All four of these paths are critical and critically important if we want to understand and travel the path properly and safely. Honestly, I find it amazing how many people really get tripped up thinking that their spirituality or their meditation can handle everything. Why not augment your practice, your path, with sophisticated Western methods? So Dustin and I talk about states of consciousness, structures of consciousness, the importance of understanding vantage points. We also talk about the conveyor belt, trans lineage principles, how to facilitate growth, and just a ton of other compelling topics. I've known Dustin, a good friend of mine for years, but this is the first time I've seen him share his brilliance at this level. And he speaks from direct experience, not just as a scholar. For me, it's this unique blend of scholar practitioner that makes him so special as you will see. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And I can't tell you how uh, delighted I am to be spending the next few minutes with one of the finest minds that I know that also happens to be one of my dearest friends. Um, It's an absolute twofer that I get in my wonderful relationship with Dustin DePerna. So as usual, I will read an abbreviated version of this remarkable individual, and we're just going to jump right in. Um, There are a lot of really rich topics that we're going to be uh, tossing back and forth here. So so Dustin DePerna is a recognized expert in meditation, positive psychology, and spirituality. Through his facilitation and writing, Dustin makes timeless wisdom relevant and accessible to the modern practitioner. In 2009, Dustin founded the publishing house Bright Alliance as a platform to release a series of carefully curated books on human potential. Bright Alliance has published many sacred texts, including several translations of advanced Tibetan meditation masterpieces that have never before been distributed in English. In 2017, he joined the core team of Evolve Foundation, where he teaches and helps to facilitate events internationally. He shares his wisdom regularly in the U.S., and China, and is one of a hand-selected group of facilitators that teach every year at the Esalen Institute. Dawson currently serves as a co-editor-in-chief of uh, Credible Mind, an online platform dedicated to connecting users to the best evidence-based resources for mental health and spiritual growth. He also teaches somewhat regularly at Stanford University in their School of Medicine. Dawson is the author or editor of five books, including Streams of Wisdom and Purpose Rising, he holds an undergraduate degree from Cornell and a graduate degree in religion from Harvard. So Dustin, dear friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to hang with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on your show. 
Absolutely. And and uh, one of the small things I did leave out in your bio, um, and that's simply because I want to start with it, is um, your incredible connection to integral theory and our, our, our mutual friend, Ken Wilbur. And so um, in a certain sense, so much of what we both do is is informed by integral theory. And you are one of the foremost um, theorists, I suppose we could say. And, and I always say it's only theory because we haven't experienced it directly. Um, I, I think integral theory is, you know, has probably more explanatory power than any other map of mind and reality that I've come across. And so I toss this term out somewhat liberally in, in a lot of what I do, but I would love for you to say a couple words um, from your perspective about what is integral and why should we bother? <laughs> yeah, gosh, great question. And, and you know, over the years, my, my response to that question has, has changed dramatically. But Andrew, before we even go into that, I just want to say mm -hmm. your, your work uh, has influenced my own thinking and my own practice in profound ways. I, the first time I came across Dream Yoga, uh, I read it in, in like two sittings. It's a pretty thick book, but man, I just find your uh, articulation of, of Dream Yoga, Lucid Dreaming, Sleep Yoga, and your framing using the integral framework to be so incredibly clear. And so just from the start, just want to say how much I appreciate you and your work. And uh, I'm you, so definitely. thankful that this has developed into such a, a, a close friendship between us. So well, just appreciate that, you. No, that means a lot to me, my friend. Coming from, from someone like you, that's, that's delivered with great warmth. And so thank you for those kind words. Appreciate it. Makes, makes the, all the work worthwhile, doesn't it? <laughs> I, yeah, I feel the same way when I, when I get that kind of response. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you for who you are. You're welcome, my friend. Show. So integral theory. You know, my, my whole response to this particular topic has really evolved and, and developed over the years. But I, I usually like to say that obviously, you know, anytime we're studying a map, you know, it's not the territory. Many people have heard that. And just like we can say that the meal is not the menu, and there's many other ways we can say it. But one of the things that Wilbur often said when I first uh, was spending time with him about 20 years ago, he said, you know, the map is not the territory, you know, but if you're in a prison and you're trying to break out of the prison, it's really helpful to have a good map. <laughs> and so I look at integral theory as the best and most accurate map we have today to understand our own mind and our own experience of what's happening moment to moment. So integral theory as a, as a basic frame is a comprehensive approach to understanding what's the best of human knowledge and human potential that we can gather into one place, looking across broad swaths of time. So looking across historically, looking horizontally across different civilizations that have emerged on our planet and really synthesizing it into a framework that can be comprehensive and as complete as possible. Now, one of the reasons I find integral framework to be so useful is its true balance of what we might call the interior dimensions of our life and experience and the exterior dimensions of life. So integral theory has this incredible way of balancing both the experiences that we have as individuals and the shared values we have as culture with those dimensions like the social economic systems that we're working in or the behaviors that people are, are, are enacting. And to me, a comprehensive approach is necessary in today's world given the complexity of the problem we're facing. Mm -hmm. So to me, integral theory is the best and most accurate map to display what's happening in our current circumstances and man, do we need it because the level of complexity we're facing as a human species requires um, a sophisticated map to understand what's happening. 
Yeah, that's that's really uh, really well said, Dustin. And one thing, let me ask you this: I, I was piqued by something you didn't mention just there about uh, integral and potentiality of of kind of relating, connecting interior and exterior. Sure. Do you think it has the potential to actually dissolve interior and exterior altogether? Um, in other words, it, it works obviously beautifully in the realm of duality, relative reality. But both in your um, doctrinal understanding and experience, does it in fact have the potential to transcend itself? Can, can we actually dissolve the boundary, somewhat in the spirit of Ken's second book, no boundary, mm -hmm. between interior and exterior altogether? Well, I, I love the question. You know, as practitioners, we both know and um, you know help others understand as much as we can this this eventual collapse between interior and exterior. So in that way, you know, Ken's background is something that is based in his own study of Zen Buddhism and Dzogchen and Tibetan practices with Kali Rinpoche and others. So in fact, he's writing this material from a stance that intends it to be psychoactive. So the map of integral theory is a psychoactive uh, map. It's not just a static map. But when you really start to take this map on and understand it, it impacts the way that you have you directly experience your moment-to-moment -moment existence. So it's not just a theory out there, but it's actually something that becomes deeply embodied. And I would totally agree with you, yes, that as this map is integrated and digested and metabolized in one's Beautiful. own system, there is a way in which it transcends itself. Um, the map is always useful when we're coming to sort of articulate the relative dimensions of our experience, but eventually the embodiment is so complete that, yes, all the interior exterior eventually merge or blend into a seamless whole. Yeah, beautiful. And, and, and also along um, the integral line here, because you are so savvy with it, and, and a number of your books deal with this, top, this following topic with such lucidity, um, and I have to say, when I bring this up these days, Dustin, I probably get more questions mm -hmm. about follow-ups here than almost anything these days. And I think rightly so. So you are an absolute expert in the difference, the relationship between states, um, structures, and vantage points. And so help us understand, especially structure stages and vantage points, um, and again, why it's so helpful to know about these in the spectrum of psycho-spiritual uh, evolution. Great. Well, it's such a, you know, one of the real breakthroughs of intro theory in general and some of uh, Wilbur's early work was in fact this key distinction between structures of development and what we might call states of consciousness. And there's a way in which we will unpack states in a further way, like you mentioned, uh, talking about vantage points, et cetera. But why don't I just start with, structures Perfect. of consciousness and states of consciousness as a, as a beginning point. So as many of your listeners may uh, be well aware, there's a whole field of study, sometimes called developmental science or developmental psychology. And this field studies what it means to grow as a human being and what it means to grow in sequential stages over time. And so many people would be familiar with the fact that, you know, we go through these stages of life and these stages of life are marked by different sort of obviously physical and biological changes. But we also go through mental and emotional changes over the course of our life and we grow in our capacities and our intelligence and our sort of expansion of care and, and, uh, and complexity in the world. But in particular, I want to just mention that for the most part, human beings assume that growth actually stops once we reach adulthood. And what integral theory points out as well, 
you know, that's not exactly the case. That there's, in fact, there are multiple levels of intelligence or multiple levels of development that people can move through that don't necessarily end when the adult you know, matures or reaches adulthood. But there are further reaches of what's possible for us as human beings. So one of the ways that I like to understand structures of consciousness is that structures of consciousness really are the operating system or the lens through which we're viewing the world. Nice. And that lens is made up of multiple different types of intelligence. So most of us think about intelligence and refer to IQ, or what we call cognitive intelligence. But breakthroughs in developmental psychology over the past 20 or 30 years have really pointed out that there are actually multiple different types of intelligence. So the, uh, you know, the popularity of something like emotional intelligence would be one of those types of intelligence. There's other types of intelligence like uh, interpersonal intelligence or moral intelligence, for example, aesthetic intelligence or spiritual intelligence. So there are probably somewhere between 12 and 20 different lines of intelligence or multiple intelligence that human beings possess. Those come together uh, in various uh, modes to form this lens or this operating system that we see the world through. So when we talk about structures of consciousness, we're talking about these various levels of intelligence that can grow, that a human being can go through, and how those form the various worldviews that, that people see the world through. So one of the ways that I like to speak about this in a more general way is to think about some very basic uh, language structures to, to simplify this. So when we start off in life, we end up seeing the world through an egocentric lens. Right? So I see my little daughter who's seven years old and she started to mature where she's having deeper compassion for the other people around her and her friends, her family. So she's moved from an egocentric phase where she was when she was two or three years old into an ethnocentric phase or, or a phase where she cares about her own tribe in a deep way, her family and friends. As she continues to grow through these structures of intelligence or structures of development, just be given the nature of our family structure and the culture that she's raised in, she'll very likely mature to a world-centric level of development where she not only cares for the people in her own group or her own tribe or family, but she'll end up maturing into an appreciation for the human beings as a whole, even if they're not part of her own kin or family or tribe. So she'd move into a world-centric level of development. Understanding this progression from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric is probably one of the simplest ways that we might understand the progression of structures of consciousness or worldviews. And again, those levels of development show up across multiple different lines of intelligence, as mentioned before. So structures of, of intelligence, structures of consciousness, become the fundamental matrix or operating system through which we see the world. They are our you know, rose-colored glasses, for example. But those are very different than what we might call states of consciousness. So whereas developmental theory has existed for about 100 years in our Western culture, states of consciousness and the exploration of what happens in our own interior experience and the exploration of altered states has existed for something like 50,000 years. All right. So shamans and the early, uh, early people that we might call medicine workers in various cultures or indigenous healers, these people have been working with altered states for a very long time. So whereas structures of consciousness and understanding these developmental levels that can unfold throughout time in a human being's life, whereas those are fairly new to the understanding of what it means to be human, states of consciousness actually are, are ancient. These are things that we've, we've known for quite a long time. And as you and I have both studied deeply, one of the most sophisticated cultures to understand states of consciousness or the different ways that we can change our, our 
moment-to-moment -moment phenomenological experience. But one of the cultures that's most advanced at that are the, is the Tibetan culture, which is probably one of the reasons that you and I have been so attracted to that. Yeah. Uh, as you know, that the Tibetan culture has uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, or at least you know, thousands of texts written on various states of mind. And these are some of the most sophisticated maps of states of consciousness that we have. So whereas you know, we talk about structures of consciousness and refer to this idea of growing up, we might talk about states of consciousness and refer to the idea of waking up. So these two dimensions of experience are not the same. And having a peak experience or an altered state of consciousness is different than growing up through these stages or operating systems, which we refer to as structures of consciousness. So that's at least a place to start with the conversation, Andrew. And yeah. we can certainly go into a lot more detail. Perfect. And let's let's do it. Let's do it. But I want I want to um, just ping out a couple um, points here. One is I was immediately taken by what you know to paraphrase Chardin, you know, the great <clears throat> paleontologist, theologian. Um, and this this is important in terms of integral theory altogether because what it does is it, it just provides such a uh, sophisticated map of of evolution. And so what Chardin said, paraphrasing him, I love it, you know, evolution hasn't really stopped. It's only moved indoors. And so that's pretty much what's going on with us. Uh, just because we've reached, and we don't know that yet because it's too early to say, some level of uh, kind of biological evolution, it, it does seem in fact that now the the trajectory does seem to be a little bit more internal in the way you were talking about it. And I think that's super important for people to understand that somehow, um, I mean, most people listening to the podcast, they've already, were preaching to the choir, but a lot of people are, you know, they, they suffer from a variety of, of, of arrested forms of development of which ego is one. Ego is just an arrested form of evolution or development. So that's one thing I want to throw into the mix. The other thing, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this one, Dustin, because this one, this is super important. It seems that, you know, one way to talk about these, these structures, you use the idea of operating systems and lenses, to me, they're, they're like glasses we don't even know we have on. Um, right. And so in other words, this, was, this is what makes them so, so insidious and so dangerous. Um, and we can briefly talk about how this ties into, you know, all the just crazy spiritual religious scandals that are happening just eternally. And so we know, we don't look at these structures, we look through them. And so they're archetypal blind spots. And this is why the world hasn't really discovered it until the advent of, of the methodologies, principally from the West, using statistics and, and um, social sciences that allow us to suss out this data. You cannot introspect these stages. And, and therefore, you can meditate till you're blue on the face and you'll still be stuck at a structural level of development and not even know it. Um, so I want to just throw that into your court and see what your initial comments might be around that, because I think this is really important for spiritual practitioners who fall into this kind of single action bias that, yeah, on one level, and I would argue the, the teachings on emptiness, theoretically, they can handle anything, but practically it doesn't seem to work that way, does it? Um, and so I think a lot of people, and I, I look very closely at my own experience, because obviously we often see in others what we don't see in ourselves, like, where am I stuck? What am I not seeing? So I, I think a lot of spiritual practitioners would do well, um, and as Ken says this, you know, to supplement their path. You're not, we're not talking to jettison, don't jettison anything. Just augment your understanding of the complex nature 
of the uh, of the human entity with these skill sets so that you can then bring the appropriate methods, therapeutic and otherwise, that can save you, I mean, decades. I, I have to share the story, Dustin. I teach a fair amount around the world now. And it's amazing. I'm sure you've probably had this experience as well, where, where really wonderful people that I've developed friendships with, you know, I'll see them like every 10 or 20 years. And I can't tell you, Dustin, how, how often they come up to me griping about exactly the same problem they had 20 years ago. And they go see their guru or whoever and their meditation, their meditation instructor. And what do they say? Oh, you're not practicing properly or you need to practice harder. I don't think so. Um, and so I just want to throw that into your court because I personally have found this of extraordinary value in my own path. And I think it's something that would behoove any honest um, psychonaut, that's Bob Thurman's term for those who look within, right? Exploring the mind and heart to know about these blind spots. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about your take on that, both with your own experience and with the people that you've been working with. Great, Andrew. So one of the things I'll just start with is that I was so compelled by this idea of you know, waking up being one dimension of growth and growing up being a different dimension. So again, growing up through structure stages, waking up through states of consciousness. Both of these are important. But one of the things that really inspired me early on was uh, some, a concept that Ken called the conveyor belt. Yeah. I don't know, Andrew, if you've ever spoke about this within your community, but the basic idea is that and we usually look to our spiritual and religious traditions and they give us amazing practices that teach us about waking up, just like you're saying. The teacher says, hey, go back and you know, practice harder. So there is a tried and true way of pointing out the nature of one's own mind through this process of waking up that's effective through pointing out instructions and through meditative injunctions. And we know that that works well and it's been around for a long time. But just as you're saying, that doesn't necessarily get at all of the dimensions of our mind and our psyche. So there's this whole other dimension uh, we call growing up. And so one of the things I was really compelled by was this concept of a conveyor belt. And that's that each of our world's great religious and spiritual systems can be interpreted through a number of levels of development. So in integral theory, we often use color codes and these other things to sort of, sort of get at some of, this, uh, some of these dimensions. But just really simply speaking, I really like the work of James Fowler. And James Fowler spoke about uh, something he calls faith development, or the stages mm -hmm. that unfold, the structures that unfold uh, when one develops a deeper sense of, of spiritual intelligence. One of the things I like about his work is the way in which we might understand the world's great religious and spiritual traditions using this general lens. And so what he says is that when we start off uh, through these process of growing up within a particular religious or spiritual tradition, we usually start that with a sort of conventional lens. And with that conventional lens or conventional operating system, we basically take things as they are. We don't question a whole lot. And there's a way in which we take things pretty literally. So if, if the teacher says something or if the Bible says something or whatever the sacred text is, says something, we take it without questioning. But as one grows up within that particular tradition and one matures to the next structure of, of development, the next level of development, one actually starts to get a little more independent in how they think about the tradition. And there's a sense of reflection and a sense of analysis of, you know, is this really what I believe? And is this appropriate for me or is this not appropriate for me? It's usually at that stage, if one moves from that conventional level to a more individuated or reflexive level or rational level, it's usually around that time when, when one might actually say, you know, this tradition isn't for me. 
turn atheist or agnostic within a Western context, or they might start questioning the values of their own teacher or their guru or the tradition itself. And so from a developmental perspective, this is a really healthy aspect of growth. But unfortunately, what often happens when people move from that more conventional level to a level where they start to be a little bit more reflexive is that they, they see it as a crisis. They see it as a crisis in their own development. They see it as a crisis of faith. But one of the things I found really valuable is that when you actually understand these levels of development, you see that as a progressive move. You see it as a positive. Once one moves from that stage of individuated reflexive development, uh, Fowler starts to talk about a pluralistic stage where you begin to see, well, my tradition might have something of value, but it's not the only one. So you move from more of a exclusivist lens to one that's a bit more inclusive, where you begin to see, well, there's a lot of other richness and other traditions that can help supplement the worldviews that I hold. So we're not only limited to our own particular tradition, but we're now firmly rooted in a tradition, but then exposing ourselves to other ideas and uh, other ways of being across culturally. So I find that to be also very healthy in understanding that development. And then finally, Fowler speaks about this, this final developmental phase where we want to move into what, what would be referred to as like a universal commonwealth or a, a way in which we begin to understand in a certain way our own tradition from a translineage perspective or from a perspective where we're still rooted in our tradition, but we're really seeing all of humanity as one tradition. We're seeing all of humanity as one great human exploration of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be interfacing with the divine and the spiritual. So the reason I bring that up in, in the level of detail I did is because this is a map that's so valuable across cultures and traditions, whether you're identified with the tradition or you're finding your way in some other form, these maps of how we make meaning and the developmental stages that we progress through uh, just becomes a really fundamental way of understanding who we are and how we can uh, evolve in the world. So for me, understanding the structures of growing up and how one might progress and how one that might influence the one's relationship to his or her own tradition or meaning making system becomes extremely valuable. So we no longer are in a world where we only emphasize this idea of waking up to our true nature, waking up to the ground of being, but we have to understand the process of growing up and how that growing up affects everything that we do in life and, and, and the lens that we see the world through. Yeah, I guess you're so articulate as usual. This is great. There are a couple of things that come to mind here that I want to just, again, just unfold with you a little bit more. Um, and I'll throw them out, then you can uh, riff on them. One is that, you know, I think one near enemy of this uh, extraordinary level of articulation is, you know, the near enemy of articulation is reification. Taking the, the extraordinary elegance of the map and actually freezing it, um, reifying it into a, a territory that, you know, reality is not this tidy. The re uh, reality is never as tidy as the written word. And so, Along these lines, you know, there is tremendous both promise and peril, and I think this is what we need to suss out at the outset, behind creating these sort of psychographs where, where we have on one level this unbelievable articulation. Um, and, and the Tibetans are, as you know, they are about as, as articulate with this sort of thing as anybody. You know, I mean, they have list upon list upon list of stages, not only of how you grow, but how you die, right? And, and so therefore, I think one near enemy that I'd, I'd love to get your comment on is the, the near enemy of typing the, um, uh, and even profiling that you can use these extraordinary dimensions of human experience as levels of articulation, but we have to be careful not to slip into that um, propensity to type, to even profile on that level. And so that's one thing along that I'd love to hear a little bit more from you, Dustin. And also, 
you started to say something about this, but I, I wish you would say a little bit more. Most uh, spiritual practitioners have some sense of what catalyzes stages of waking up. I mean, that in many ways are what all the different practices are about. Outside of what you said, how else can one in fact catalyze growth through these structures? Does it, does it begin with actually um, understanding what they are in the first place, um, which is obviously what integral theory does and what we're doing here. But then how, how do you grease the skids? How, how does, I know this is an impossibly difficult question, but how does transformation really take place um, at the level of structures? Great, great questions, Andrew. Well, let me just speak to the first one, which is how do we avoid the reification that sometimes these models can uh, do in our lives? And that's, to me, these models are always secondary to the direct human relationships that we have. And it all comes down to being humans in relationship. And those relationships with the best that we can, if they can be kind, if they can be caring, if they can be mutually supportive and enacting, you know, that's really what we're going for. So for me, the map never circumvents the direct relationship between human beings. If we notice, and we certainly see this in, in integral community and in any communities that are really focused on concepts and, and maps, is that if we're not careful, then this can turn into an objectification of self and other, where we lose contact and we lose relationship. So for me, these maps are only a supplement to how we can be together and live a life in which connection becomes the primary mode of, of our contact. So in that way, you know, it's in a certain way preferencing the Sangha rather than the Dharma, Beautiful. rather than the Buddha. There's a way in which relationships is the, when we have all three of those, relationships become the mediating function to help prevent that particular air or that near miss that you're speaking about, that near enemy. Now, that's not to say that we want to, um, you know, always privilege the Buddha or the Sangha or the Dharma, but that when these three live as a triad in harmony, it actually helps to correct for other potential errors. So in this case, Andrew, if I noticed that that was happening between either in my life or amongst other people, I would emphasize the Sangha dimension, emphasize the relational dimension, and really give that the, the, the prominence it deserves, because oftentimes that's getting circumvented when uh, people are reifying and, and typologizing people in ways that aren't, aren't helpful. Um, do you want me to go right into that question, Andrew? I want to leave space here for yeah, you. Yeah, well, let me, oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, let me just say one thing here and then I want to have you continue because you're, you're, you're just on your game, my friend. A couple of things come to mind. It's like what Thich Han says so famously, you know, the, um, the Sangha is the next Buddha. And, and this, it's very interesting. I read a, 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 a fine, um, riff by David Brooks, who I, 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 I'm, I'm a cautious fan of his. And he, did, he, he gave a very interesting kind of historical analysis of, of um, the current pathology and how it is that so much the transformation from we to I is at the heart of so much of, of the problem now. So self-centric. And so this kind of return to the Sangha, to the we, is incredible. And, and also deeply connected to this Dustin is, I love what you said about relationship because I, I'm a, I just simply could not agree anymore with what you said that, that on one level, there is only relationship. That's all there is. We always think of, well, relationship to what? Well, relationship to other relationships. There, you know, fundamentally, this is, a, 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 I think, a really important assault on ontology, a real important assault that even the way we view things, things, which of course is kind of force fed by language itself, 
is problematic. And so this, this notion of relationship to me is absolutely important. And, and in Buddhist language for the listeners who are familiar with it, this is what's called um, the dependent nature or paratantra, which is uh, the second of the three natures in the Yogacara tradition, which is fundamentally when they talk in provisional terms about quote unquote, what's out there, paratantra is what's out there. In other words, dependent um, arising dependent relationships. So I really wanted to throw an exclamation point on that. And in my estimation, and I think this is this is what emptiness as a kind of general theory of relativity is all about, that fundamentally there is only relationship. Relationship to what? To other relationships. Yes. And so therefore, oh boy, what does that fluid view of reality do? Uh, it, it inextricably connects us to not only every other person, but to this planet which right now, this is, I would argue, this is the foundational reason for the ecological crisis, is this loss of, of relationship to this very mother of our being. So I wanted to throw that out before we transitioned, um, but that's what came to mind. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more in this idea that relationship becomes fundamental is both a um, abstract concept, but it's also clearly a direct practice injunction that how we relate to each other and how we are with each other becomes uh, a fundamental way of expressing our own practice and our own realization moment to moment. And one of the things that I would say in particular is that you know, integral theory in its, in its various incarnations and forms has emphasized the map dimension. But more and more over the past decade, as integral theory lives and breathes through me and, and many others, it has become more of an embodied experiential practice moment to moment. And one of the things that we speak about, just the just the double tap on this relationship piece, is that and eventually in practice we begin to realize that we deeply affect each other and we actually bring each other forth. We enact each other. And so there's a very simple practice called seeing through golden eyes that becomes that. the fundamental practice injunction of relationships, just as they're articulating it. And I'll just I'll, I'll mention it briefly to your community here. Oh, please. And that's the the practice of Every time you come in contact with another human being, you can take the view that they are both more awake than you and more grown up than you. Yeah, so you take the view that they are both further along in their state development and further along in their uh, structure development. And uh, if you do that, then two things potentially emerge. So one is that perhaps that's true. It's perhaps it's true that you know this person happens to in any given moment. Know, be more developed in you in these various domains. And if that's the case, then what you're doing is you're opening the floodgates to really receive the depth of wisdom that this being is holding and to receive that and to have it impact your own experience. But on the other side, let's say it might not be true. And let's say that this person in this particular moment is coming from a deep sense of self-contraction or, or some structure stage that may not be quite as sophisticated as, as you, know, you might hope. But even if that's the case, when you see this person with those golden eyes, when you see that person with this attitude of them being both more awake and more grown up than you, then you're actually hold, holding open that possibility for them to grow into that. So it becomes a moral injunction to hold each other in relationship with golden eyes in such a way that we're calling forth each other's highest moment by moment. We're always seeing each other fresh. We're seeing each other with these eyes of, of potential. And um, for me, it's that simple practice injunction of just showing up with each human being in that way has created more transformation in my relationships and in my own life and 
and in the experience of others, they've reported back that that has a really positive effect on them. Just being with each other and that loving appreciation and presence of seeing them with golden eyes. That's so beautiful. I just totally agree with you, Andrew, that this relational piece becomes fundamental and um, not only between humans, but obviously. I, I love that, Dustin. So is, is that actually your, your um, uh, nomenclature? That's something that Ken, Ken actually gave it to a small group of us years ago. Oh, I love that. Here, you know what comes immediately to mind is, and I can't, I can't remember if, uh, and again, it doesn't really matter where I got this or if I made it up. I, I mean, I plagi plagiarize so liberally now I can't even tell anymore. <laughs> Plagiarism is the highest form of flattery, right? So what, what came to mind here was, and again, I don't remember where I got it, but it's a wonderful practice along these lines to, to think um, as a thought experiment, like being in a pure land, that in fact, on one level, we are in a tantric pure land, <laughs> that everybody on this planet is a Buddha, except for you. Everybody here is, is here to wake you up, to grow you up. And so therefore, what a radical transformation in relationship. Everybody is there to teach you. So that jerk that just cut me off on the road, that's Padmasambhava teaching me patience. That, that person who, you know, basically broke my window or whatever gets my goat is Avalokiteshvara teaching me about love. Exactly. And so therefore then everything becomes a teachable moment. And this is, this is Tantra. I mean, this is taking any obstacle and transforming it into an opportunity through the proper view. So this, again, is in another way, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about view, the view that's involved through um, both lens, uh, both kind of trajectories of waking up and growing up. And also, yeah. I wanted to say I, I, something that's so important for me these days, and it's why I continue to be more um, enamored with integral approaches these days, is for me, if there's no praxis, there's no interest. I, 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 I have marginal interest in, in so-called traditional continental philosophy, if it doesn't have a practice involved with it, I'm just not that interested. And, and so I think that's really important to uh, emphasize to our listeners is that at first glance, integral theory can just seem like the domain of the egghead. It's so intellectual, or at least it appears that way. It can, it can, be, it can almost be blinded by the level of, of uh, kind of cognitive light here. But what Dustin's saying here is so important is that underlying the whole thing, and, and I can speak to this, knowing um, integral practitioners and scholars, is in fact this, this uh, praxis component, integral life practice. How can we take this incredible map and actually use it right here, right now, moment to moment, day to day, to wake up and grow up? And that to me is the game, uh, the deal maker for me. If it didn't have that, Dustin, I wouldn't be interested. Um, and for you to say that that's what you're seeing as it matures, uh, I just applaud it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's so important, Andrew. And like I said earlier, you know, studying the map can be psychoactive, but it's not until we're actually living the map directly in our experience that, that we actually see the true benefit of it. And, you know, I was one of those folks early in the, the integral movement. I was called an integral kid. So I was sort of raised on this stuff with, as part of my... Uh, my maturity and the more and more that that myself and you know there's there's you know thousands around the world who, who are like this as well but the more and more i develop the more and more it becomes less about the map and more about the, the immediate practice injunctions just like you're just yeah like, i think again that cannot be overstressed because then it becomes a path then, yes. then it's not just what you're reading it's actually what you're ingesting like you mentioned it's interesting you said that by the way that is actually even the words you use ingest digest metabolize is that's part of what's uh, called the three prajnas, or the three wisdom tools in Buddhism, hearing, contemplating, meditating, where the final point, well, actually, it's not quite the final point. 
The final point in this kind of Gnostic pedagogy is in fact meditation. The final point, and this is what I wanna get with you, you know, when we close up today, is actually um, enlightened activity. How does this all affect our relationship to the world at large? But before we get there, I wanna come back because I think this is also super important. Outside of what you shared with us, how else can we catalyze growth yeah, sure. through these yeah, structures? I'm, I'm glad to pick up that thread again. This is a, quite a provocative question because it's, it's um, you know, I think there are people within the realm of developmental psychology who are really curious about this question. So we don't have any definitive answers, but I'll, I'll throw out a few ideas of speculation that may in fact be things that can catalyze uh, vertical development or, or structural development. So um, the first, as, as some of your listeners may have heard, is that, that there is an interesting way in which meditation practice, although it focuses on the transformation of states of consciousness, there's a way in which that subtle disidentification with the bounds and solidification of the ego structure, there is a way in which that can help to lubricate this movement through structures. So Wilbur often cites a, a study from about a decade ago that showed that people who, uh, you know, people on average were tracking uh, to move through developmental stages about every five years. But those who were uh, practicing meditation actually showed that their vertical development through these structure stages actually increased. And it was one study, and I think it was a small study. It was like a sample study of around 30 people. But it was suggestive enough to say that maybe there are ways in which meditation practice can lubricate structural development, although that's not the intention of it. You know, the meditation practices for waking up, not growing up, but it perhaps it lubricates it. But I'll say my own experience. There are a couple of things that have been fundamental to growing up. And, I find this to be, uh, you know, it's not research, but I have the, the end of one in my own experience. And as I chat with people, they seem to resonate with it as well. So first is cross-cultural experience, yeah. traveling, having the exposure to cultures outside of your own. There's no better way to begin to make your own subjective cultural experience an object than by exposing yourself to a radically different culture. As you develop, what starts to happen is that what was the subject at one stage becomes the object yep. of the subject at the next stage. This is Robert Keegan's famous Keegan's work. Yep. What that means is that as we develop, we begin to make object all those experiences in our internal uh, maps that otherwise weren't seen. So as we develop and expose ourselves to different cultures, there is a way in which we become aware of our own culture. And as we become aware of our own culture, we're not so, we're, we're a little less it's a little less reified. We're a little less prisoner than we might have might have been prior to, to not seeing it clearly. So travel is one. Another thing that I think there's a lot of promise for, and Andrew, I know you've done some work in this field as well, is I think virtual reality. Oh, so yeah. using virtual reality to expose people to different scenarios or complex problems, to, to put people in circumstances that otherwise they may not have had exposure to, there's a way in which that dramatically increases one's capacity for perspective taking. And so I think virtual reality, I think we'll see some interesting pathways there. And then finally, you know, inner travel. So things like lucid dreaming, learning, learning to lucid dream, having intentional experiences that are outside of your, your norm and or uh, practices with psychedelics. I think these types of inner travel or inner exploration, I think have the potential to lubricate that structural development that we're talking about. But again, a lot of those aren't tested. Those are speculation. But you know, in my own experience, each one of those things has dramatically affected my own uh, understanding of self and culture and, and the ways in which these structures can, can perhaps be lubricated. Yeah, well, what are your thoughts on that, Andrew? Have you had some exposure no, I, to different I, methods? Yeah, I love it. I, I love what you said about traveling. Um, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I've probably been to 60 countries in my life, and every single time I go, um, it, it feeds 
exactly this type of growth that you're talking about. And it's revelatory on so many levels. It's revelatory of, of my ability or lack thereof to be open to other people of how, um, you know, do I go to a McDonald's in some developing country um, because it's more familiar to me? That's actually revealing. Or do I, in fact, go to a local indigenous restaurant? It, it really sometimes can be just that that can open you up. Um, I also really like what you said about VR. I, I actually talked to Ken about this. Um, maybe, in fact, after I did my study, um, I, I mentioned to him, I said, Ken, I think one of the best things you could do is, is encourage, because remember, I think he does this in his book, One Taste, where he gives this kind of rough um, depiction of what it's like phenomenologically to be at these stages. And when I went into VR, I, I immediately flashed on that book and I said, oh my gosh, this is totally what VR, and you should talk to this with your folks at the Evolve, is actually fund virtual reality projects where you can simulate exactly these types of, of, of structures where people can then gain an intimation of what it is in fact like, you know, not only through virtual reality, but what now they're calling virtual embodiment, where you can, you know, with these programs, you can look down and see yourself as a black person, a person of color. Um, and I know that the, the UN, for instance, have, have uh, they've done things like put VR headsets on their people to have them see what it's like to live uh, through the lens of a Syrian refugee, for example, and the level of empathy that's created. So I think virtual reality has enormous um, potential along these arenas. But one thing I want to come back is I think this is a really big deal topic, Dustin, is this idea from Keegan, you know, make subject object. And two things here, one is, um, well, actually mostly one. Would it be fair, this is one way, and this is a question to you. <clears throat> one of the ways I look at, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the display of the structures that, that, that are fundamentally on one level, they are unconscious processes, you know, um, the lenses that we don't look at, we look through. But wouldn't it be fair to say that somewhat ironically, through the process of uh, repression and projection, that in fact, in a very real way, we don't, we don't see these unconscious processes um, as actually the generators of the very worlds that we project. In other words, when you talk to this idea about making subject object, this is a different rendering of that notion that, that unbeknownst to us, we are taking these structures and like King Midas, touching everything um, with our version of gold. Everything we touch transforms into our version of gold, which is the level of structural development that we're ensconced in. So is that, a, is that a fair way to look at the overt, but yet um, unconscious projection of these structures onto the very world that uh, we think is axiomatic, but it's actually a construct? Well, I mean, certainly this comes into the, down to a principle in integral theory that uh, Ken was so careful to articulate a number of years ago about enactment, and that we literally do bring forth the world based on the structures that we have in place. So your idea of Midas is gold touch. Like, we are bringing forth a world according to the lens that we're looking at it through. And you know, that's an important notion because as we grow and develop through these different stages, there is a way in which we start to become aware of previous lenses that we once wore, but we, we can never see the lens that we're wearing at the moment. So one of the metaphors that's used here is the idea of a ladder and a climber in a view, which Andrew, maybe you've heard. Yeah. The idea is basically that you know, there's a climber who's headed up this ladder and each new rung on the ladder represents a structure stage development. So 
when you move up on that ladder, you're moving to a new rung on the ladder and you're looking from that view at that new rung on the ladder. Now, the interesting thing about these structure stages is that these lower structures, actually in a certain way, um, we can no longer look through that lower rung, yet we can become aware of all those basic principles that yeah. are, are operating at that yeah. level. So as I move from an egocentric level of development, that rung, to a higher rung at an ethnocentric level of development, that doesn't mean that my egocentric needs or my needs to take care of myself go away. It's simply that they are recontextualized into a larger frame that can take more perspectives. And so I think as we really begin to understand development, we understand making subject object, it actually just allows for a much wider embrace of what it means to be human. It doesn't mean that we need to deny what comes before. It doesn't mean that we need to die, deny different aspects of ourselves. It simply means that we develop in our capacity for care and complexity and perspective taking. And from, from that perspective, there is a way in which when we're enacting reality from these higher views, although we can't see those rungs that we're looking through, we can't see the glasses that we're wearing, there are ways in which these higher views do have more positive effects. That's, that's, that's so helpful. Two things here, and then I want to transition into, this is a perfect place to swing back to vantage points. Yeah, great. But one thing you said, I, I want to just put an exclamation point on this this notion of, of transcend but include that that having access in the image I, I there's several images you know one is when you grow from five foot one inch to five foot two inches you don't kill five foot one you transcend exactly. five foot one and so this is super important because you simply realize that the view is better from the higher uh, ladders from the higher rungs and so therefore to me, Dustin, the, what actually defines upaya, skillful means, is in fact just this. It's not meeting people where you're at, which often in this case means talking right over them. It's actually meeting people where they're at. And therefore, you always have recourse um, to the egoic, limited, funny way of looking at reality. Um, it's like when you want to stoop down and communicate with your child. If you want to communicate, you don't talk as an adult. That's not skillful. You meet them where they're at. And then what happens, and I would argue this is what the great masters did, you know, they in a certain sense stoop down to meet us. We fall in love with them because they do that. And then what do they do? They stand up. And then hopefully we'll stand up with them. And, and to me, that's real skillful means. So I wanted to really put an emphasis on that because so many people think, oh, I've got to get rid of the ego. Well, no, you don't because the ego doesn't exist. Ego is just a funny set of relationships that we we're talking about earlier. And so you always have recourse to that limited way of looking at things. And you, in fact, engage it. That's what I would say of what the great masters do. They stoop down to communicate with us. Um, so I wanted to really throw that out there because it's the basis of skillful means as I've come to understand it. And it's also a way to realize that um, you're going to transcend the ego, but you always have recourse to it when you need it. As a as a as an armamentarium, as a skill set to relate to others. Yeah, and this is a perfect transition, Andrew. As we start to talk about vantage points, or and there we go. Let's do it. Perfect. So, uh, you know, I just I really appreciate your emphasis here on transcend and include. Sometimes in the world of integral theory, we also talk about these stages unfolding but infolding each previous stage and whatever the languages that we prefer it's it's just vital to recognize that this you know there are certain developments that we transcend and negate but for the most part there's a huge movement of transcendent embrace or transcendent include um, of these different structures of mind so thank you for emphasizing that i think it's important for people to know absolutely but this this leads us into quite a um, 
bit more specific, but I think probably the most important dimension of, of what I've, I've come to find in my own life, the most impactful and transformative. I mean, obviously moving through these structures of development uh, changes everything. When we understand that there are higher structures available beyond our you know, current structure, it just leaves room for this continual internal evolution, as you put it. And that's obviously extremely valuable. And skillful means increases, perspective taking increases. And there, are, there are many, many other benefits that come from structural development. But I wanted to speak about states of consciousness for a moment and speak about the fact that although we usually think about states of consciousness as something that are temporary and that they come or go, um, I want to just mention the fact that these meditative traditions, as you know, and as, as certainly I've trained with my own teachers, Dan Brown and others, the whole point is not simply to have states that come and go, but to establish these states as vantage points or as views that become the way of seeing the world in a more stabilized way. And so just as you're saying, you know, this isn't just about transcending the ego and getting rid of the ego, but this is about transcending the ego to a deeper and wider view so that the ego can uh, coexist in, a, in its appropriate form, um, not necessarily getting rid of it altogether. And so I speak about that. And I'd, I'd like to, Andrew, if it's okay with you, just outline a map of how, oh. one way of how I understand state stages to unfold. And, and just to give people a bit more of a reference point for this in their own direct experience. Excellent. So when, when we begin the meditation process, when we start to meditate, we sometimes have gaps of experience where we're not thinking as much as we might normally think. We might even have gaps where thoughts subside entirely. And in those moments, we begin to realize, well, there's an awareness present and that constant chatter of thinking isn't as incessant as it usually is, or maybe there's even a gap of that in, in that moment, we have the opportunity to recognize that our own awareness and thinking aren't actually the same. We can start to uh, peel apart those two layers of our experience. We start to realize, wow, awareness and thinking, awareness must somehow be beyond thinking, although it certainly includes the capacity to think. And as we deepen the practice even further, we begin to examine different dimensions of this self that comes up, our usual sense of self. And as one's practice develops and matures, we begin to see that, well, there are ways in which we can see through that self-structure or that usual sense of personal identity in ways that it no longer has the same sort of solidity that it once had. Yet here there is in the background, there's this awareness that's still present. And so we begin to see through that layer of self, we see through the layer of thought, yet there's an awareness that's still here, always ever present. As we continue the practice, we can work with principles on the nature of time and its relationship to space. And as we unpack awareness from its constriction in time and space, we begin to have this realization that, oh, there's an awareness that's here that's not confined in the coming going of time. This awareness is actually ever present. And as we examine it in further detail, we realize that this awareness also isn't bounded in a particular limitation of physical space, that this awareness is boundless and timeless. So each one of these progressive stages, we begin to unfold a new realization of the true nature of awareness and we enfold the capacity to still function within time or space or within self or within thought but we're no longer exclusively identified with any one of those layers and as this progression unfolds even further we begin to realize that even this idea of there being an individual consciousness with subject object or a tendency to particularize to make things things or to be attracted to or aversion from particular instances of experience that even that aspect of our experience can be transcended and included. That ultimately, 
this awareness is boundless, timeless, non-dual, vast, and deeply interconnected and caring with all of that experience that arises within it as an expression of it. So this progression is just one simple way to understand how states of consciousness or this process of waking up can unfold. And it allows us to see that any one of those different bases of operation or any one of those vantage points, whether beyond thought or self or time, space, continuum or individual consciousness, any one of those views or vantage points can be stabilized as our realization deepens. And I bring this up is because so many people, in, when I first uh, in, in, were talking about meditation or we're doing practice together, so many people haven't even come to the realization that this isn't just about some experience that come and goes, comes and goes, but the meditative practice in and of itself is about the stabilization of each of these levels of realization. And when we become aware of each of these levels of realization, moment by moment, we actually become aware of the process by which we could easily get caught. And I know, Andrew, that one of the things that you've been working at more recently are some of you are calling reverse meditations. Yeah. And I don't know if that relates to this particular principle, but uh, anytime you speak about that, I'm always thinking about the ways in which reverse meditations are bringing enemies onto the path or these things that used to take us off the path, like thoughts or sense of self, et cetera. Anytime we bring those back onto the path and we can be aware of that process of self-contraction, that simple awareness of the process of that self-contraction is exactly what allows us to stabilize these deeper aspects of, of awareness. Well, oh boy, you're, you're definitely talking my language now, my friend, because this is, this is something that I, I talk about all the time. In Tibetan, of course, this is the difference between um, nyam and tokpa, literally experience and realization, mm -hmm. or using the language of our, our friend Richie Davidson in his quite book, a uh, nice book, uh, you know, the, the maturation of states into traits. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think this is another really, God, it's just such an Another important point, because for me, the way I look at this, Dustin, is it's almost as if um, within the path of, of waking up, there's a subpath, which is in fact just this, this, this uh, path of stability, um, where Houston Smith put it beautifully, uh, not specifically around this, but you get the idea, you know, the process of the path is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. And this, this is such an important topic. Because for me, it explains where so many people, without an understanding of this, get seriously stuck. Um, so, so many so-called Western meditation masters, quote unquote, are simply firmly ensconced in a nyam, in, in an experience. And, and Taisitya Rinpoche says, these are the most dangerous of all spiritual traps. And so I want to throw out what, what I recommend for this, and I'd love to hear what, what you recommend for working with this, is... You know these things are, are tricky because they're so they're so delicious. They're, it's like um, you know sweets and candy for your spiritual path. And on one level, that's great. But if you just feast on sweets, it's going to make your meditation and your path pretty sick. And so, uh, and I love again love to hear what you have to say. I always recommend with people what what what's so important is to understand. Spiritual path is not necessarily about feeling good. It's not about becoming a state junkie, or as our friend Zvi talks about, a God addict. It's not necessarily about feeling good, unless you're talking about basic goodness. It's about getting real. And this ties into the reverse meditations. Getting real means including things that we would normally call non-spiritual, like pain, like everything that's happening in the world today. 
So this is a colossal near enemy of the whole spiritual path that by really almost by definition, spirit is put in contrast to matter. And that contrast opposite often turns into opposition. So instead of just merely defining spirit in contrast to matter, spirit then becomes oppositional to matter. And therefore what happens is this rampant host of, of spiritual pathologies that Kent talks about as Vishnu complex, spiritual bypassing, cosmological dualism, um, spiritual materialism. So, you know, to me, what needs to be done here is, first of all, recognize the absolutely insidious nature of these traps because, you know, they just feel so good. Um, and then reinstating that the cure here is, in my opinion, you simply have to reinstate the conditions that brought about the experience to begin with. And if you take a very close look at that, what is one of the most primary foundational tenets of that? Absolute openness, absolute release. In other words, you have to let go. And so therefore, like Pacho Rinpoche and my teacher Kempo Rinpoche um, very bluntly say, there are times when you nurture your meditation by destroying it. You nurture your meditation experience by absolutely letting it go. Um, because otherwise you're just gonna be stuck in a God realm state of mind. So I'd love to hear both from your own experience as a practitioner, Dustin, and also working with students, because you're a very sophisticated teacher, um, how you've handled this with yourself and with others and, and what you can share with us. Great, Andrew. I just love your comments on that. And thank you for sharing the ways in which you've worked with it, because this is, a, this is obviously one of the dangers of the path. So I'll share a couple of things that I've learned through my own practice and really through the mentorship of Dan Brown, who's been a huge influence in my life. And one is that we always have to be aware of the flaw of representing past experience in the present. And what that basically means in, like, in a jargon-like way is just that we have to be careful about conceptualizing about our practice. And it's just to your point, Andrew, that it's all about the moment-to-moment -moment freshness of the experience. It's not about where we were five minutes ago, one minute ago. It's not about where we were you know, two years ago when we had some big spiritual opening. This isn't about reclaiming some particular state that we had in the past. This is about the moment-to-moment -moment openness of the realization each and every moment. If we can stay fresh with the practice, that means this moment, that means this moment. If we can stay fresh with the practice, I think there's a way in which we can potentially avoid this sort of state chasing mentality that you're speaking yeah. about. Yeah. The, the second piece, which oh, I just can't emphasize enough, and I, I'm so happy that you're tracking this so closely. And obviously, we've got a lot from Ken in this regard, and certainly in my own practice with, with, uh, with Dan Brown, but this idea of spiritual bypassing the idea that somehow the experience is supposed to feel good and that if we're feeling bad we're somehow you know not in the realization to me this is such a dangerous view yep. that this view itself by its very nature includes and embraces everything moment to moment that realization isn't about changing the field of your experience and this is why i make this distinction between states and vantage points. Yeah. The realization isn't about changing the field of your experience. The field of your experience might be positive or negative. I mean, there could be all kinds of categories and judgments that the field of experience can fit into. It's about the vantage point from which you're experiencing that field of experience. Lovely. Are you experiencing it as a self-contracted being that's identified with thought? Are you identifying the field of, are you, are you experiencing this particular moment as a self? Are you experiencing it as a timeless, boundless awareness? Or are you experiencing it as a timeless, boundless, non-dual awareness that has no location and no reference point? 
it matters which of those particular perspectives you're coming from in any given moment. The field of the experience can stay the same. That's not gonna be the marker of your realization. What matters is the, the level from which you're viewing the experience. How you relate so to the experience, we're changing where you're viewing it from. I just want to throw in, I don't want to stop your track, but I just wanted to say, this is where this issue of relationship comes back in. Yeah. It's simply how you relate to it. So I, I don't mean to interrupt, Dustin, please say more. Well, I'm just, I'm just right with you, Andrew. And I think these kind of questions and these kind of conversations are so valuable um, because there are a lot of people, I think, that are desperately uh, searching for these kind of answers and are quite confused in their own practice, thinking that it should be a certain way or that they're trying to make the experience like some experience they had in the past. And they're just basically, as you pointed to, spiritual materialists trying to just consume more and more experience. And just that's not the right view. Um, but I, I will say, Andrew, that I think it's important for us to weave together, now that we've unpacked this idea of vantage points or these states that have become stabilized, I think it's important to weave that notion back together with growing up. So we have this waking up dimension that can be stabilized, and we have the growing up dimension. And the reason it's important to, to, to really bring these back into relationship or back into contact is that you can have any level of waking up along the spectrum we've just discussed or, or along whatever other spectrum your, your tradition or, or practice uh, orientation might articulate. You can have any stage in waking up or any of these states of waking up, and you're still going to interpret that realization through the lens or the glasses that you're wearing of the structure of growing up. So what that means is that if I'm at an ethnocentric level of structural development, and I have a deep sense that my tradition, which I've not questioned uh, in, in a very conventional way, I think is the right tradition, then it, even if I have this experience of waking up, I'm going to interpret that experience through my lens of ethnocentricity or through my limited lens of conventionality. So what that means is that even if the waking up might be authentic, that it can come through the interpretive lens of a level of development that sees it as the only right way. So if I'm in a, uh, you know, if I'm a Christian and I have a deeply profound spiritual experience or I have some sort of movement along this vector of waking up, if I'm coming through an ethnocentric lens of interpretation on the structural developmental level, I might be more convinced than ever that Jesus is the one and only right way. And so it's important that we develop not only through these stages of waking up, but through these structures of growing up so that we can actually have a more complex and sophisticated view that's more inclusive, more capable of accounting for the complexity of what's happening in the world. So we wanna just emphasize that waking up and growing up are important. And up until this point, because growing up and understanding growing up is only about 100 years old, this is pretty new and novel when we add this dimension of growing up to our world's great religious and spiritual traditions. Growing up is, is equally as important, although it may not be as liberating, it's equally as important for the skillful means of how we uh, interact with the world. Yeah, wow, and it's just so spot on. And there you go, you know, we're, we're, we don't have to spend too much time on this one, but this is exactly what I intimated earlier on about how you can have a, a, a spiritual practitioner, even a tuku, um, who has high level state experience, not realization, um, download that through a, a low sometimes you know not even ethnocentric point of view and then you get all the sex uh, and scandals that you have in the world today i i honestly doesn't i i don't know of any other map 
of uh, the human heart mind that has this kind of explanatory power. If there's one out there, I'll, I'll replace it in a heartbeat. But this really helps understand the limitations of putting all your eggs in just the spiritual basket. Why not, why not open the aperture of your awareness even more to include the upayas from the Western world? So I want to come back to one central kind of archetypal theme here. This is a question to you, my friend. I, this is a question of such centrality in my life that I'm actually taking a little sidebar um, from writing my third book in the Dream Trilogy to actually pen a book on this topic. Um, it's gonna be a, a book on open awareness, contraction and the reverse meditations. And to me, the reason I wanna to talk to you a little bit about this is, is when I start to look, and this is just my neologism, my, my, my phraseology here, at foundational common denominators, um, irreducible principles, you could almost say if you're careful, you know, really the elegance of reductionism. Um, in this case, reducing things, kind of spiritual reductionism into foundational principles. And when I look very closely, both in my experience, um, something I can really feel, which is why I love contraction in, this, in that sense, I see contraction as generative um, to so much, if not all of the samsaric trajectory on, on whatever um, kind of vector you wanna take it across. And so is it in fact, I can certainly speak with, with a little bit more authority about states and structures, but I'm curious to see what you would say when, when I look at, at development, um, for instance, the Buddha uh, sometimes literally translated not just the awakened one, but the opened one. And so to what extent in your experience um, can contraction be used to help us understand the generation, not only of the, these more reduced reified state um, levels, but even more particularly uh, with your expertise for the generation of these structures. Oh, well, well Andrew, this, this type of contemplation is, is precisely the kind of conversation that needs to be happening with people, with the community of adequate, just like you're, you're, you're articulating here. And so I'll take a, you know, of course, a pass at this, but this is really the leading edge of dialogue around this type of of topic. So I just want to be humble with my response here and say that, you know, I'm learning this along with with many others. So let's continue this conversation, but I'll, I'll at least you know kick Wait. it off. So for me, let's speak about each of these independently, and then I will emphasize structures uh, in particular. So for me, if the foundation of where awareness is coming from in any given moment is already this openness, and if we understand openness to be always already the case in our direct experience, then these various levels of self-contraction simply become the beautiful ornaments or gifts of how that realization manifests itself through all layers of reality. Okay. So there's no problem whatsoever when we speak about self-contraction from the perspective of waking up. Self-contraction is the compassionate means for the creative activity of awareness to manifest itself to itself. And that continual process of revealing itself to itself is the ever unfolding awe and joy of experience. So I don't see any problem from the perspective of waking up for this sort of generative potential of self-contraction to reveal itself to itself. It's actually quite beautiful. It becomes the, the ornaments or the decorations of how awareness decks itself out. So that's fantastic, no problem there. But when it comes to the idea of structures, when it comes to the idea of this process of continually 
infolding. So not only unfolding through evolution, but infolding previous structures. I do think that we need to be careful here in understanding sort of some of the specifics. So one of the things that I would say is that, you know, I have two young children. I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And the more that I allow myself to really witness what it's like for these structures to form in their own development, there's a way in which I get in contact with those aspects of myself in different ways. Hmm. I'm more in contact with my own seven-year-old and my own three-year-old than I ever have been throughout my life. Way more aware now than I was when I was seven or when I was three. There's a way in which my awareness of those aspects of myself has been enriched. And so I do think that there is a process where self we can call it self-contraction this that i would say more like structural awareness Mm. Um, structural awareness on this other side becomes a a function of compassion care for oneself and others that through being fully in touch with all these layers of ourselves we actually are digesting our own experience digesting our own karma in ways that would otherwise be much more difficult and so there is a way in which these as we get more and more in contact with these structures of development that have unfolded throughout our experience, we are simultaneously um, liberating ourselves to be more fully in contact and in touch with layers of selves and others that otherwise would be difficult to meet. So in both these cases, I see contact with lower structures of growing up and contact with these sort of lower vantage points of waking up as a means for both compassion and joy in the world. There's a way in which we are in deeper relationship with self and other as we allow this realization to move through both of those domains in full ways. So it really double taps on this relationship piece that you mentioned earlier. It allows us to be in more intimate relationship with self and with other, and therefore with reality, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, wow. I mean, it, it just stops my mind, the level of, of subtlety and profundity with all this. Anything else before, you know, we have so many cool things to talk about, and I don't want to exhaust you or, or our listeners, but I, I do want to um, transition into something that you, you mentioned at the outset that I think warrants a, a revisitation here, uh, this notion of, of trans-lineage spirituality, or, or even, uh, oh gosh, I mean, on one level, you could almost say trans-religiosity, the, um, the common without slipping into some of the faults of the perennial philosophy, there is something to be said about, about dimensions of heart-mind that do seem to be um, trans in, in the you know, best sense of that word. So come back to us a little bit about that that we just tossed out, you tossed out so briefly, and the sure. importance of that. Because uh, you know, when I, it's funny, Dustin, when I look back over the, some of the people I've been blessed to, to chat with, um, like our mutual friends, V um, and Ben and Chris Wallace and uh, a number of these other people that when I start to look at, hey, there's a common theme with all these amazing individuals. It is in fact this kind of uh, lion's roar, this proclamation of a truth that actually transcends any level of surface structure. So say a little bit more about that, both in your own experience, how that has informed you and why it's so important. Great. So I'll, I'll say, I'd like to give two, two sort of simple sort of metaphor slash stories around translineage practice that I've found to be just really helpful in my own understanding and my own development with regard to the concept. And so first I'll just say that translineage, when we use that term, it usually means that we are both grounded in a lineage, yet we've also moved beyond it. There's a transcendence and inclusion of our unique line. 
And one of the things that I like to say is, is I like to unfold the developmental spectrum of structures uh, through this sort of process to understand translineage uh, in a fuller way. So if you have two people that meet at an ethnocentric level of development, there's going to be two people from different traditions who are basically digging their heels into the ground, each certain that they're right. Right. As we progress from that more ethnocentric level to a world-centric level, there is a way in which there is a quality of tolerance that, that you know, develops. So there's ability for these two people to shake hands with each other. As we go a little bit further up that development spectrum, we get to these more pluralistic levels of, of understanding. There's a way in which these people can start hugging and maybe even mutually appreciating each other. So these people are going from digging their heels in to shaking hands to now hugging as they progress through this developmental spectrum. And then I'd say that once they get to this integral level of development or this translineage capacity, it's almost like they all take off their robes and they stay naked as human beings together. Right. And there's this possibility for people to be naked and human and not have to exclusively identify with the particular line or lineage they came from. Although, of course, that's always deeply informed. So when these people stand in community together, you can imagine them in a sphere together or a circle together, there's a way in which they're radically human first and they're holding their lineage second, secondary to that human aspect of their experience. But each one of these people could look back down their line, put back on their robe and meet people within that lineage at any point in time. So that's one metaphor is that there's, mm -hmm. there's a pro developmental progression to enter into this translineage space that feels important. And the second is a metaphor that comes from this a, a dear friend and mentor of mine named Bruce Lyon. And he uses the metaphor of, of the sun and stars and the galaxy. And this is a, is a great point to sort of perhaps even sort of double tap for our community what, what it means to live in uh, integral uh, awareness and what it also means to live in a translineage space. So he once said to me that we're moving from a solar age into a galactic age when it comes to spiritual practice. And in a solar age, there's the single spiritual teacher who's like the sun, and there are the spiritual students or seekers who are like the planets. And those planets look to the sun for their warmth, for their light, and for their survival when it comes to spirituality. That's the traditional role of the spiritual teacher and the traditional role of the guru. And in this model, that particular style will remain. There will always be a need for suns and there will be planets seeking their own light. And eventually those suns can illuminate those planets if they too become suns. So that will remain. But what's unique about this particular moment in time is that suns, those who have actually found their way through this own, their own paths and their own lineages of illumination, that these suns are beginning to look up and see that they're in constellations and formations with other suns. Yeah. That these suns are beginning to realize that they are all standing around this event horizon of a black hole in the center of the galaxy. <laughs> and as you stand around the horizon of this black hole, you recognize that black hole represents the infinite evolutionary mystery and potential of what can emerge between us through our relationships with each other. And so as we as suns look to our right, to our left, up and down, and we begin to see other suns, that's a bit like what it's like to come into translineage space together. First, we gather in constellations, and then eventually we see ourselves as an entire galaxy standing around this event horizon of a black hole. And so I like that model because it has included in it this transcendent include, it has the idea of the self-illuminating aspect of suns. And then it has the idea of the next Buddha being the Sangha or these suns coming together in formation with no single sun in the center, but standing in formation around this void of potential or this great mystery. So for me, that is what people, like the people you named, dear friends, you know, what people like Ben Williams and Svi and, and Harish and others, 
this is the moment in time that we're recognizing that we're in. We stand in lineages and we stand as sons, naked, examining the potential of what's possible of this mystery that emerges between us as we stand in relationship with each other. Yeah. You know, and Andrew, I've always felt you as part of that constellation in a deep and profound way as well. That's <laughs> very generous of you. Likewise, mutual, mutual. So let, as we start to close this up, and there, we have to bring you back on, Dustin, because there's, there's so much more that we really um, need to talk about. But as we start to close this up for today, uh, I love what you said about the times we are in. Well, let's bring a little bit of this heaven back to earth, um, the times we are in. What a mess. Um, so much fear. Total mess. Yeah, so much social unrest. So much, I mean, we, we know. I'm, I don't need to say anything there. In, in your experience, with everything we've talked about, um, how can we give our listeners some, some really practical tools. I think there's a lot that's been suggested, but let's be a little bit more overt. What can we give our listeners from this vast display of information that we've shared with each other that can be of practical use right now to deal with this anxiety, this fear, this angst, this uncertainty? Um, because really, here, this is one of the things, I, I've developed a wonderful friendship with David Loy, um, who's, uh, I think, one of the most sophisticated Buddhist thinkers on the planet. Mm -hmm. And when, when we talk these days in our conversations and walks, we're often talking about, you know, of what relevance are these teachings? And, and, and specifically, this days, we're talking about Buddhism. Of what relevance is the Buddhist tradition right here, right now, if we cannot, in fact, bring these wisdom teachings, um, ancient and modern, to bear on... Uh, what's actually happening in this in this time where the, the earth is just screaming out in pain and we are heading out um, towards a, a, a completely irrevocable, irreparable um, tipping point. And so what can we do? What, what How can we take these teachings and, and really bolt them into our lives right now and, and to work? To act, you know, I want to end with this theme of enlightened activism. Yes. Um, because that's what's needed right now. I mean, th this world is calling out, you know, it, it, the bodhisattva in David's terms is, really needs to be replaced by an ecosattva. Mm -hmm. so, so talk to us a little bit about that, how you're engaging these, these teachings on a very kind of gritty, down-to-earth, practical level. Great. Well, I, you know, one of the things I'd want to say from the very start here is that you know, we've only talked about growing up and waking up so far. Mm. That really, in a certain way, is half of the integral puzzle. The other half is, is cleaning up and showing up. Right. So cleaning up relating to doing the deep shadow work, both in ourselves as individuals, but also at our collective shadow, the traumas that have happened in our past, finding deeper reconciliation with what, who we are as a culture or as a, a species. That relates to both planetary concerns, racial concerns, et cetera. So we have to clean up. We have to actually go in deep and do the deep work of shadow work to understand who we are and what needs healing. The second dimension is the showing up. And this really relates to this activism, this enlightened okay. activism piece that you're speaking about. That it's no longer enough to simply do these practices and to sit and have these you know, experiences or even realizations, but that always has to manifest in conduct. It has to manifest in how we're showing up in the world. So I, I sometimes use this example that in the 1960s, we had these two different threads that began to develop, at least in Western culture and certainly in American culture. 
one of those threads was the group of people who turned inward and began to explore their consciousness and they explored psychedelics. You know, we knew the Beatles were practicing with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and a lot of these other uh, teachers of Dharma and Eastern wisdom were coming to the United States. And oftentimes these folks had some profound and authentic uh, experiences and, and even realizations. However, there was another group of people who focused more on changing the world. So we had environmental movements emerging, women's rights movements emerging. And in both of these groups, there were great successes. And you know, we'd see such changes in civil rights, et cetera. So huge successes in both these groups, but each of these groups had their own liabilities. So on the, the inner experience side, sometimes these people had profound experiences, but they were impotent in the world to actually impact action. And on the other side, we had the people who were doing the transformative work in the world, but oftentimes found themselves burnt out because there was no uh, end in sight to how much the world needed to, to change and be improved. So we are at this profound moment. When we speak about this time, we're at this profound moment. And of course, there have been exemplars of this in the past, Larry Brilliant and, and, and several others, but we're at this moment where these streams can fully come together. They can fully weave together where you have people who are deep practitioners, who have authentic experience and realization in such a way that there's an infinite well of action, conduct, enlightened activity. There's no possibility of burnout. And at the same time, you bring the stream together of social action where there could be true impact in the world for change and impact in a way that we desperately need as both a planet and as a global culture. And so when these streams come together, I'm so incredibly hopeful that there is a pathway forward for inexhaustible action in and, and through enlightened activity, just like what you're pointing to. And the time has never been more ripe for that than right now. And from my perspective, there's no map that's complete enough to really handle what's required for the complexity that we faced in this integral map. And so I'd say that these traditions need to be supplemented with a much wider view that's more comprehensive that includes all of these dimensions. If waking up, growing up, cleaning up, or showing up is left out, the map is partial. If they're included, there's a chance that we actually might make it through this in a way that is of benefit to all beings. So that's my hope. My hope is that things like the integral map become practice injunctions and, and true maps for people to navigate the territory to make sure that approaches are as complex and comprehensive as possible. And um, I, I'm hopeful that that's possible given our current circumstances. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me along these lines, Dustin is again. Um, I can't. I don't, I'm not sure if it was Lama Zopa, but somebody once said, uh, uh, "Obstacles don't um, interrupt the path; they are the path." Yeah. And I, I think that's super helpful to understand. And, and one thing, I, last thing I want to circle on before we close is there's so much fear these days. And and is again, as I look towards these foundational kind of uh, generative impulses um, at, at any level of psycho-spiritual pathology, neurosis, pain, suffering, very much in, in conjunction with, with um, contraction, by the way, you know, where we're in a very real way, you know, I think Ken might have even said this, right? Fear is the mood of the self-contraction. To what extent do, do you see fear, in fact, uh, kind of underlying both these vectors of growth and what in integral theory specifically addresses this? I know on one level, you know, so much of it circumambulates this topic, but in these, these kind of um, four aspects, waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up, 
where can people go to um, better understand the nature of fear? Well, also, you know, we could both probably speak to the center, but I'll, I'll speak from my own experience within the Tibetan context first before I move to integral. In the Tibetan context, there's a way in which when you bring this open awareness and it comes in contact with fear, it transmutes into a, an, an optimal alertness, an mm -hmm. alertness that says, hey, I'm here, I'm ready, Some, you know, I'm totally radically present. So we need to use that fear as a way of being radically here and alert, ready to go, with whatever is needed in any given moment in time. So in that way, fear is just an, a label that we've put on an energy that, that more truly is a radical alertness. And I think that's helpful for people to understand is that you know, we're not in any way trying to make fear go away. We're just trying to allow the essential energy or essence of that fear to manifest itself in the most skillful way. And when that open awareness comes in contact with it, that there is this, this, this alertness or this optimal uh, readiness for action. But from the integral theory side, I will say that you know, fear and, and the sort of overwhelm that people feel is actually a sign in a certain way of developing this capacity for relationship and for feeling. Yeah. To feel fear and to feel the pain of what's happening and to feel the total anxiety and crisis of what's happening is actually a sign of feeling. That it is a crisis. We are in a crisis. We're in a planetary crisis. There are many ways in which we're in a political and cultural crisis, at least in the United States. There are ways in which there have been deep pains and wounds to obviously native populations and to the African-American populations in the past that haven't been reconciled. So this quality of fear, of anxiety, of pain is actually a sign of feeling what's here. And just as we were saying earlier, we're not trying to avoid these experiences. We're trying to be as radically present with the experiences as we possibly can. And in that way, say that this is why the waking up dimension is so valuable when it's combined with growing up, cleaning up, and showing up, is that when we develop this capacity to be more present with what is here, more radically open to what is here, there's a way in which it allows us to feel more of what's here, to be more compassionate, to feel the pain even more fully, but it allows us to have a background of knowing that it's okay. It's okay that we feel all that. And I always like this phrase that Ken uses, where he says, you know, when we develop more and more uh, meditation practice and more experience, things actually hurt more, but they bother you less. Right. In the sense that you actually feel more. You might feel more intensely the pain of what's happening, but it's okay. That sense of it's okay doesn't excuse like a need for some sort of apathy. We're not sliding into the near enemy here. It's okay means that you can hold it, feel it fully, and then from there have the kind of enlightened activity and action that you're speaking about. But feeling what's happening is actually a fundamental sign of progress in the path rather than numbing out. Yes, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And, and and really, it's isn't it when we feel that we're changed? It's a little bit like what I was talking about about my lack of um, sustained interest in in just mere armchair philosophy. You know, we we don't feel we don't change if we're just left um, from the head. You know, we we change when we feel things when we we take these things again into the soma. Um, ingest, digest, metabolize it, bring it into your being. And, and so what you're saying is just beautiful, Dustin. It, it really harks back to this kind of alchemical or even tantric approach to all this, that, that fundamentally, if we, if we are armed, it, in fact, with these views, with these skill sets, and that's why these maps are, in fact, so important. You know, the, in the Buddhist tradition, right view is the first and easily, arguably, the most important of the eightfold factors of enlightenment, right view. And so integral view is, is 
right view, complete view, in my opinion, or as complete as, as we can get. And so with that view, we're armed with this alchemical tantric approach where we can use, in fact, anxiety and fear as um, real opportunities for growth. And, and one thing I want to throw in here is that, you know, anxiety and fear are, are just basically um, really good things on the spiritual path because when related to and viewed properly, they are revelatory of ego's relationship to the threat of openness, the threat of space. And so therefore, it, it can actually show you when, when you have that sense of fear, it is in fact, etymologically, as you know, fear comes from a root that means fair, as in toll, to grow. Um, and so with a proper um, map, with the view, we can therefore see when we feel the contraction, when we, when we feel the anxiety and fear, we can almost say to ourselves, what am I um, right now contracting against? What is it right now that I am afraid to be more open to? And then in a kind, loving, compassionate, playful way, explore that. What, what, what am I not willing to step into? Where, where, what is actually generating this impulse? And if you do this, this will take you very, very far down in, in, in the best way to the kind of bedrock of relative reality where I um, often argue, Dustin, that, that fear is, is the affective bedrock of samsara. This is the generative samsaric impulse that basically we spend the entirety of our lives in extremely sophisticated avoidance strategies. Um, fundamentally, just parenthetically, and this is too far askance uh, uh, straight to talk about it now, the fundamental fear is in fact the fear of utterly complete open relationship, i.e. emptiness. The fear of the truth, the harshest of all noble truths of our inherent lack of existence. Um, lack of existence. And so I just wanted to throw that in so that when people are looking at this as such a problematic age, you know, in the in the great cosmological sutras, it said that in this particular kalpa, this cosmic cycle, there'll be some, a, a thousand what are called supreme nirmanakayas, supreme Buddhas with a mission like Buddha Shakyamuni, of which the Buddha that we know is only the fourth of a thousand. And there are only a, a handful, allegedly, in this, this sutra that will actually teach the tantra. And the, the Buddha Shakyamuni taught the Tantra because it's an armamentarium that's actually needed, um, a skill set that's needed for this kind of degenerate time. And so I, I throw that out there because it, it allows us to um, close up on a really positive note that if we relate to these things properly, and, and that's the key, we, we in fact do have to relate to them properly because as Roger, our, Roger Walsh, our friend says, you know, the, the, default in difficult situations is not progressive, it's regressive. The default is to try to get Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, that ain't working, right? There's a reason Humpty Dumpty hit the wall here. And so I say this so that we can close on a really positive note that if we relate, there's that term again, properly, armed with this right view, armed with integral life practice and other practices, we can in fact transform you know, the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunities. And so really the investigations for us are what are these opportunities? Without slipping into spiritual bypassing and all the near enemies, what in fact is the teachable moment now? Um, and how can we really use it to accelerate our development and therefore um, in a directly proportional way, bring this extremely challenging situation very directly onto the path um, for, compassion to grow for self and other. 
So, um, yeah, any, any comment or, or response to that before we start to, to wrap it up? I just wanted to throw that in because I want to leave people with really practical tools um, that they can actually be inspired to explore more about integral theory, to learn more about these types of skillful means so that they can engage them like right here, right now. Well, the, the only thing that I might add, Andrew, just to supplement what's been said so far is that these things like fear and understanding the, the, the impermanent nature of both our existence, our planet and what's happening right now, that these things can all be used to really understand the preciousness of this moment, the preciousness of our particular life, that right now we have an opportunity to practice and to show up and to clean up and to grow up like never before. And man, is it needed. So it can be all these circumstances, you know, if used in, in the right way, can be used as motivational forces for people to take their own practice and their own path even more seriously than ever before. Yeah. And so may these, may these circumstances you know, really cause the flourishing of these, these thousand Buddhas that you're referring to. And those Buddhas aren't somewhere else. These Buddhas may very well be you listening to this right now. They, they are yeah. in some exotic form out in the distance somewhere. But each one of us has this innate capacity to become one of those Buddhas. That's beautiful. Well, my dear friend, as we start to close up for today, we absolutely have to bring you back. There's so much more to talk about. How can people learn more about you? Um, tell us a little bit about the current projects that you're involved with. How can we learn more about you, support you, and the like? Great. So DustinDiperna.com is a great way to find out the latest things that I'm doing, ways that I'm teaching. Um, also PointingOutWay.org is the Tibetan lineage that I'm connected to with Daniel P. Brown, and I'm constantly teaching retreats through that particular lineage and line. And then, as mentioned in my bio, love everybody to check out CredibleMind.com. Credible Mind is an incre incredible resource for um, exploring all the different apps, podcasts, and books that help to relate to spiritual growth, and uh, they're all evidence-based. This is a really fantastic resource for, for all of you. Um, and beyond that, Andrew, I just want to say so thank you to you. It's such so joyful to speak with someone with such intelligence and depth of practice and experience just really appreciate who you are and everything that you're bringing to the world and to your community. And maybe next time we can touch on uh, dream yoga, because that's also a topic that you and I deeply share and, and love and, and care about incredibly. So yeah. really thank you, Andrew, for your time and energy and for welcoming me onto your show. Well, you're, you're very generous and kind and loving as usual, Dustin, and my feelings are completely mutual. And we'll absolutely positively bring you back. I, I didn't want to dilute the, the importance of what we were discussing. Um, and I thought we covered with some thoroughness topics that I think are so important. And we will absolutely spin back around and revisit um, these nocturnal practices that we both have such a passion for and that uh, you have so much to offer. So we will absolutely do it again. Um, big love to you from over here and stay healthy. And um, until next time. Andrew, thank you. Be well. Take care. Bye now. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And a special thanks to Dustin for sharing his extraordinary knowledge. What a journey, huh? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a whole lot going on right now. So until next time, pleasant dreams.